Miracles, abortion, and the minimum wage. All that and other completely non-controversial topics on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to another episode of Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. Now back on a weekly schedule following my move across the country. It's good to be back. We've got a lot to talk about, not just questions, crazy stuff happening in Virginia yesterday. So, I don't know. Let's stop vamping and uh, get it started. I don't know. I don't really know how to do this. Um, the Peppy theme song seems weird, but it seemed weirder to leave it out. Um, I was going to, I thought about maybe canceling this episode and doing a special episode, but I don't know that I have a show's worth of stuff to say. Um, but if you haven't followed the news, there was a white supremacist march that turned violent in Charlottesville, Virginia. There were literally torch-carrying mobs of angry white men and really encouraging signs of uh, counter-protests and even clergy uh, standing in the gap. Um, Then, you know, somebody drove a car into crowds. And I just want to take a moment and just grieve with you all that this is the state of our world in our country right now. It's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking um, that there are people who openly and proudly campaign that America should be a white-only or white-first nation. And I think most people find that completely morally repugnant. Um, But I can't help but notice in the same vein that uh, And I have looked, I have looked all over Facebook at friends and family and people who have sent in questions to the show or made comments on the past that have denounced, you know, black protests across the country. There's a, a deafening silence attached to this display from white supremacists. And I have to get this out of my heart and into your ears. Uh, There's no room for neutrality or sitting on the fence here. We've reached a point here in 2017 where you're really either fighting white supremacy or keeping it alive. And I'm sorry if that sounds too plainly stated. I'm sorry if that sounds offensive. But since November... Some forces in our society have been emboldened that have always been there. They have always been there. The civil rights movement sent overt racism scurrying into the shadows, and it was replaced by systemic racism and covert racism, colorblind racism, but it never went away. 
And your voice is needed. If you're white and listening to this program, it means a lot for you to publicly denounce white supremacists and white nationalists. And frankly, to call on our elected leaders, especially the president, to denounce white supremacy as well. Not violence on all sides, whatever that means. <laughs> there wasn't violence on all sides. There certainly wasn't people open carrying assault weapons on all sides. There certainly wasn't cars driven into crowds on both sides. We get lulled into a false equivalency that deeply concerns me on issues of racial justice in this country. And my friends, we can do better. As human beings, we can do better. If you are a Christian, absolutely you can do better. A need for order lulls us into an uneasy alliance with forces of oppression. And I'm starting this week's show by saying, that has to stop. Now is the time for white people of good moral conscience to stand up and be counted with people of color as they seek a position of true equality in our society. And folks, the data is clear. They don't have it today. They don't have it today. If we look at family wealth, if we look at income, if we look at access to education, if we look at criminal prosecution, if we look at incarceration, if we look at point after point after point, it will illustrate the simple fact that America operates on white supremacy, that it is easier to be a white person in America than a person of color, all things being equal. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't advantages with wealth and that you couldn't point to examples where there was a rich black family and a poor white family, and in some ways the poor white family had it worse. That's not what I'm talking about. We also have big problems with economic distribution in this country. We have big problems with how the working class of all colors, including White people are treated and rewarded for their labor. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the simple, indisputable fact that people of color have a different experience in this country because of the color of their skin and that it's getting worse today under the current presidential administration. Now, I know there's a large part of this audience that doesn't want me to get political. I have been accused of being anti-white more than once. I am not anti-white, but I am pro-equality. And I, I can't sit silently by as people of my ethnic heritage, of my skin coloration, of my cultural norms, march on American streets, carrying torches and chanting Nazi slogans. Not in this country, not anymore. So I would challenge everyone listening to get involved. 
If you don't understand what I'm talking about in terms of white supremacy and in terms of, of the plight of marginalized people, especially people of color in America, get educated, start reading, start learning. If you've already started down that path, get involved. You can donate to organizations like the Movement for Black Lives or the NAACP or the ACLU. You can donate your time. When protests happen in your community, you can show up with bottles of water and render aid to the people doing the work. You can get involved. And that starts with using your voice and saying, I will not allow white nationalism or white supremacy in my country. Where do, <laughs> we're nine minutes in. Where do I go? Where do I go with that? I've got a script for a whole show here. I've got, I've got some, an excitement, an, an announcement I'm really excited about. Not talking to you. Alexa, stop. I have one of those echoes on my desk. And sometimes in the middle of the podcast, it starts listening. Greg, just leave that in. Okay, let's just let's go to the announcements. You, you all understand my duress over Charlottesville. I pray that you share it. Uh, <laughs> got some events coming up. Really excited about soon now, actually. Um, September the 15th, about a month away, we're doing the Liturgist Gathering in Los Angeles, California. And man, tickets have started moving. Um, so if you want to go to that, go grab your ticket. And we'd love to see you uh, in Los Angeles, September 15th. Or in Boston, October the 6th. Or in Seattle, October the 27th. The Liturgist Gathering will be in all those places. Tickets are selling quick for all dates. So go to theliturgistgathering.com to learn more. I'm going to be doing an Ask Science Mike live tour in the UK, October 11th, London, October 13th, Manchester, October 17th, Edinburgh. Very cool. October the 21st, I'll be in Dublin at the Rubicon Conference. Love to see you there. November the 15th, the Ripple Effect Conference in Lawrence, Massachusetts. Uh, news or links to all those, you can learn more at AskScienceMike.com. Just click on the Events tab. Way cooler. Pete Enns, the man himself, author of some of my favorite books on the Bible, Bible Scholar, has agreed to answer your Bible questions on this show. All you've got to do is use hashtag AskBiblePete on Twitter, or you can go to AskScienceMike.com and send me an email or a voicemail, just reference hashtag AskBiblePete to have your question be considered for that episode, a Bible-themed episode. I'm really, really, really excited about that. Few people have been as influential in how I understand the Bible as Pete ends, and I, I can't believe he's agreed to do it. So that's, uh, that's kind of a dream come true. It's lightening my mood a little bit. So that's our announcements, and uh, what do you say? Let's do some questions. Hi, Science Mike. This is Casey from New York. Uh, my question is about raising the minimum wage. Um, so uh, a cousin of mine recently uh, mentioned on Facebook that he's going to vote for the first time. Um, and um, he went on uh, to discuss a, a bunch of uh, policies that he had positions on, uh, but one of them was the, the minimum wage increase, um, thinking that raising the minimum wage favors people um, who haven't done any, th- any hard work and that it, it um, 
works against people who have worked uh, hard. Um, so my question is if there's uh, what the science is on, on raising the minimum wage in terms of the economy um, and how that, uh, uh, how that would affect people um, who started at a lower rate and have worked their way up to above minimum wage um, and uh, how that relates to our uh, duty as Christians to, uh, to kind of lay ourselves down for the uh, disenfranchised and the poor and the needy. Um, so, uh, yeah, that would be great. Thanks a lot. And I really I love the program. So thanks for listening. <laughs> for the record, uh, there, there's some really politically divisive questions this week. I did not pick them. <laughs> Oh man, I get more than um, more controversy than I'm interested in. Uh, I don't, I don't love that. So, uh, minimum wage is man, is that a hot button issue? So let's figure that out. I think the first thing I would say is the whole merit or people haven't worked hard enough thing in terms of wages drives me insane. You know what I mean? Like tell, tell a mom who works in housekeeping in a hotel about not working hard enough to get ahead. Some of the hardest working people in the world make the least and have the least career mobility. Um, so that that is a line of thinking uh, that really disturbs me. You know, I get it. My dad grew up in poverty, literal poverty, and he worked really hard. He got a college education. He made a career path. He became quite successful. Uh, and kudos to my dad for doing that. But he, he speaks English. <laughs> His parents spoke English. He's white. So as he started to uh, struggle and, and genuinely work as hard as I've ever seen anyone work for his success, he had a number of advantages. And uh, that, that can't be ignored when we talk about wages and wage growth is that in the data, in our economy, there are things that are better predictors for economic success if hard work is a given. Although, frankly, you can succeed without hard work if you have enough innate advantages starting out. Uh, but let's go back. I think I've, I've skipped too far ahead here. And let's talk about how economists would argue the minimum wage uh, which I'm not an economist and not especially strong in economics. Um, just full disclosure. So here's one, one, one position economists would take. Raising the minimum wage reduces employment and drives inflation higher. Why? Well, if, if a company has a set number of dollars to pay employees and you raise the minimum wage, well, the money has to come from somewhere. So they're either going to increase prices, which is driving inflation, or they're going to cut back on their employees' hours, or they're going to let employees go so they can pay the remaining employees more, uh, forcing productivity higher, right? So that would be the argument against minimum wage. It ends up driving inflation and reducing employment, therefore hurting the economy. Another position economists would take would be raising the minimum wage increases the real income of the bottom 30% of income earners. Meaning, once you raise the minimum wage, 
first, an immediate benefit is on people who made uh, incomes below whatever the minimum wage is being raised to. But then because you raise the minimum wage, it starts to push up wages of people who are, who are just above the minimum wage uh, based on market principles so that people can still retain employees with competitive salaries. Okay? Those are the two positions. I haven't weighed in on either one. I've tried to represent them as simply and as accurately as I can. And what the minimum wage tells us is at its heart, this is an issue that stands as a rallying point for free market advocates, people who think less regulation in economies is better, and economic progressives, people typified by the New Deal, saying that equality and fairness is part of a healthy economy, not simply growth. Okay? And and what your worldview tells you is going to say, like, what's more important than the minimum wage? Like, if you're progressive, you might say, you know what? A little inflation is okay if it helps out people at lower income levels. If you're a free market person, you're going to say the merit should determine where the money should go and the deciding force is the market. Those are the two ends of the spectrum. Of course, people can be anywhere in there. Now, let's let's be real here. Uh, I used to be a libertarian on economic and social issues. I thought as little government involvement as possible was the most fair, gave people the most liberty. But then I spent a long time in corporate America and... Often the way decisions are made in large institutions are made in ways intentionally that benefit the people at the highest levels of management who make the most money. And I'm talking here about big publicly traded companies a lot more than like a mid-sized business. You know, we've seen some studies that tell us there's a great thing about small and mid-sized businesses. Everybody knows everybody. The owners know all the employees and they tend to treat them a little more fairly when you get an institution that's so large that your employees are, are, aren't known to you, they're basically points of data in a spreadsheet, uh, the way that you compensate and care for those employees changes. Um, and I, I can say I've worked some, for amazing small and mid-sized companies. Um, and then the problems I see definitely come in when you talk about large-scale, publicly traded companies. So that sort of swung me <laughs> towards becoming an economic progressive, which is what I am these days. I look at uh, someplace like uh, the Netherlands. I look at uh, you know the Scandinavian countries, all all those areas, and I say, now that's that's a that's a healthy form of economic progressivism, where we have a strong social safety net, where workers have guaranteed rights. Uh, but that innovation still exists, that you have a strong capital economy. Um, I think that seems to be a good system in our world today. Although, frankly, the libertarians um, in my audience are going crazy right now, as are the leftists. There's a lot of leftists that listen to Ask Science Mike who are constantly trying to get me on board with economic leftism. <laughs> but here I am in the messy middle. And here's why I'm more of a progressive. Libertarianism, I think, ignores the systemic effects that allow people with more money to earn more than people without. The way that capital uh, amplifies liberty uh, 
in a free market society is ignored in the philosophies of libertarianism. And that success isn't an indicator that they've worked harder or are smarter or have more merit in some form. Because the biggest predictor for wealth we see in America today is how much wealth your parents have. Riddle me that. If it's merit, why are the children of rich people, do they always have more merit, right? If you want to go anecdotal, everyone can think of some wealthy person's child who's been extremely successful as an adult but doesn't work terribly hard, right? Now, anecdote is not the... The day... <laughs> The plural of anecdote is not data. Uh, so I was kind of fighting anecdote with anecdote there. But my point is how much money your family has is the biggest predictor for how much money you're going to have. Not how hard you work. Um, and since, going back to the white supremacy discussion earlier, since white families tend to have more money, their children tend to make more money. And this is a big systemic problem. So me, I'm for raising the minimum wage. I'm for anything that starts to increase the share of the economy for people lower on the income ladder because I don't buy the argument that these are lazy people that don't work hard. It's not my experience with low-income earners. My experience with low-income earners is that they work hard for low income. But... The minimum wage isn't some silver bullet. It takes a large collection of policies to more equitably distribute the gains in an economy. Right now, uh, the wealthy have been increasingly getting higher portions of income growth and overall wealth. Not just the, the, the lower ends of the economic spectrum, even the middle of the economic spectrum has been left behind. And people who make like if you're worth a million dollars net worth, you haven't gotten as many gains as someone with 10 million. And if you have 10 million, you haven't gotten as many gains as someone with 200 million or 500 million. We've got this crazy slope happening right now that historically has not been a good predictor of long-term economic health or social stability. It's a real problem if you combine economics with history, uh, which is why I care about it. So I'm sure I'll get a ton of email about how I was dramatically wrong on this answer from both sides. <laughs> but uh, that's how I understand it today. Okay, our next question came in via email, and it reads, Greetings and salutations and other words like that. What is your opinion of Craig Keener's work, Miracles? On one hand, it's really interesting to hear stories of these events, but how does this affect the non-believer's claim along the lines of God doesn't grow limbs or other sorts of obvious, undeniable miracles? Greatly looking forward to your thoughts. And then there's a link to the book. Okay, bad news. I've never read that book. It's a $65 academic book that I don't own. And uh, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't buy it for the show and I wouldn't have time to read it well. Yeah, so how, how how does a book that tries to make a case for why miracles are a thing, how does that affect skeptics? I don't think it affects them very much. Now, I'll be honest. My first instinct was to give one of my super inspirational everything is a miracle speeches, which if you've 
listened to Ask Science Mike, especially the live episodes before, uh, you've heard it. <laughs> but I know that's not what you're going for, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna skate and just you know go for the uh, emotional resonance that makes people happy. I'll actually try to engage the question fairly. Here's one thing: miracles bring up really troubling questions about when God chooses to act, and therefore when God chooses not to act, right? Like, um, if God heals one person, why not another? Um, If God can intervene in times of disaster, where's God in like a tsunami, right? This, this, This places at God's agency all good and evil that happens, and it creates a very troubling picture of God. Uh, But if we put all that aside, there's another issue. Skeptics would say, regardless of this book, Miracles, we don't have any, and I mean any, sufficient forensic evidence that a supernatural miracle has occurred to accept that they exist. Right? If you were to write a paper on why miracles exist and cite nothing but scattered human testimony... That that paper's not not going to do really well in peer review. <laughs> you could write a paper on that people believe miracles occur, and it'd be a slam dunk. Eighty percent of people in the United States believe that miracles occur. This is a majority held position, but for a skeptic, popularity is not validation for an idea or a belief. Evidence is. So how you know how do I approach this? What's my opinion of Craig Keener's work? I don't have an opinion of Craig Keener's work. I haven't read it. It wouldn't be fair. Um, it, But his work doesn't affect skeptical claims that say, to believe in miracles, I need to see evidence. Human testimony is just not going to get it there. Um, you can get human testimony for all sorts of things. Human testimony has been studied, and is generally unreliable. I'm actually one of the people that thinks human testimony shouldn't be admissible in a court of law. That's how little confidence I put in human testimony. My own included, by the way. I can't tell you how many times uh, I have found some piece of forensic evidence that undermined my recollection of a series of events in my life. Constant. Constant. It used to trouble me. Now I've just realized that... uh, I don't have a consciousness as much as I have a narrator, <laughs> which is true of everyone. Our consciousness really tells a story about our life more than makes decisions about what we do. Um, and because of that, my faith is not a debate or an argument I'm trying to win. I don't, I don't honestly seek to address skeptical, skeptical concerns about miracles, nor do I seek to like empirically validate miracles. That's not where I'm going with the scripture. When I go to the scripture... When I go to the Bible, I'm looking at a collection of documents and books and letters assembled by the church that tell me how people have understood and contemplated God throughout history in the Judeo-Christian tradition. That's it. That's it. It is not my magical book of miracles or something to instantly validate me um, about my worldview. It is a way to wrestle with what it means to be an entity that's aware my life will end one day. And sure, miracles are part of that, placing them within a historical context where an author wrote to an audience with a specific agenda. Sure, miracles are part of that. 
Have I had things in my life that felt miraculous? Absolutely. But they are nothing that would comfort a skeptic or convince them that, you know, my understanding of God is correct and therefore they should convert to my way of seeing God. And I can't imagine much that interests me less than that. And and this is not a critique of your question. It's a really good question. As I say, it, it sounds like you're probably one of the 80% who believe in miracles or someone wrestling with where you are on miracles. And given my messy marriage of mysticism and empiricism, <laughs> I'm probably like the worst person you could ask. Um, so maybe I should have done that everything is a miracle speech after all. Hey, Mike. Um, first off, I just want to say I have recently started listening to uh, this podcast um, after being a fairly long-time listener of the liturgists. And uh, I also attended the Chicago liturgist gathering and uh, was able to speak with you a little bit. Um, but I had a, a question that has been brought up into my uh, mind as of late um, due to, um, you know, the women's marches that have gone on and uh, um, just a lot of uh, back and forth arguments about this topic. But I wanted to touch on a topic of abortion really quickly and see what you uh, your thoughts are on that topic, um, specifically in terms of uh, when the soul enters the body. Um, I realize that's not very scientific. However, uh, to me, that would change drastically how I feel about the topic um, as a whole. And um, I also just wanted to kind of get some some insight um, on just how to think about the issue in general. Um, being a bit more of a progressive, pro-choice Christian. Um, thanks for everything you do. Bye. You know, this episode has brought me to a realization and that I am very comfortable when I'm asked questions about facts. <laughs> if you ask me, I love science questions. Why? Because I can, I, can, I can relay to you scientific fact really well. I'm good at remembering and synthesizing those things. And then I, I'm okay um, at offering advice. There's a lot of advice questions that come into the show, and I'm comfortable doing that because a lot of times all people really need is to know that they've been heard and 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 understood. <laughs> um, and then you can say, well, here's what I would do, and you could be right, you could be wrong, and that's fine. You're just humble about it. But the questions I have the most trouble with are when you all ask my opinion. And uh, three out of four questions this week <laughs> are looking for my opinion. You would be shocked, folks, how many things I don't have an opinion on. I think I don't have an opinion on most things. Uh, <laughs> I'm a peacemaker who meditates a lot, and that's not... Um, <laughs> I have non-judgmentalism oozing out of my pores. That's probably why I do well with the advice questions. I don't judge people. But to give you my opinion, I have to judge something, and I'm terrible at it. 
so I'll do my best here. Uh, this is this is possibly the most divisive issue in our nation and in our culture. Um, if you look at most social issues, there's statistical movement over time, and uh, abortion has been like locked in place for 25 years, almost an even split uh, in this country. We did a liturgist podcast episode about it. I think Rachel Held Evans joined us on that one. I think it's called Pro Life, Pro Choice. Uh, I'll try to find it and put it in the show notes this week so you can get deeper thoughts and more than just my thoughts. A few things on how I approach abortion. You said, so when does the soul enter the body, which is a very common place to start on this issue. The problem is I would return this question. What is a soul? Does everyone agree on what a soul is? If we can't agree on what a soul is, can we agree when a soul comes into the body? I know there are many people who believe in a soul that enters the body at conception. I know there are people who believe there's no such thing as a soul at all. And I know that there are people who exist somewhere between those ends of uh, polarity, right? So can we make... Uh, a a universal legal decision based on something people fundamentally can't agree on or provide sufficient merit for their position. So I don't know that the soul thing can enter the legal discussion because even among people who believe there's a soul, there's not an agreement on what a soul is or what the implications are for the law. Uh, so maybe we could back it out and say, when does life begin? Well, I mean, what is life? You know, by any reasonable definition of biology, sperm are living cells. Egg cells are living cells and sperm die all the time. Most people have no problem with using a, a contraceptive that has spermicide that kills sperm. If a man masturbates and he's, and he, um, hasn't had a vasectomy every time he masturbates, sperm die, right? Uh, if if we don't want human cells to die, uh, then women should have to conceive every month, which isn't even possible. Do you see what I mean? That's a ridiculous standard. So some people go to, well, when can an organism suffer? Well, we kill things that can suffer all the time. When's the last time you had a hamburger or a chicken sandwich or some bacon? So maybe we elevate human life to some special position and we say, when can humans suffer? And after that point, uh, an abortion is not legal. But then that's an odd approach to suffering because we don't mind if, um, if people are hungry because they aren't working and could work. A lot of people say, well, if they, if they can't work, they don't eat. Well, that's suffering. Ah, but now there's some agency. Do you see what I mean? This spirals out of control so quick. And frankly, we can't discuss abortion in a vacuum without examining how it intersects with women's rights and how little say women have had in their reproductive rights historically. It's just a messy, messy issue. And I get... I really get in trouble for saying this, but I think both sides of the abortion debate hold positions that are logical 
and ethically consistent within their worldviews. If you believe life begins at conception, then abortion is murder. If you believe that there's a, an immortal soul in a child, the moment, or in an embryo, in a fertilized egg, then that's it's, then abortion is murder. If you don't believe that, then abortion isn't. Do you see what I mean? It comes down to your worldview. And uh, since I'm the I don't know what a soul is guy, it's hard for me to throw in with either of those camps. Uh, I do get concerned that um, human rights do they only begin post birth? If if they begin pre if they begin pre birth, then like there's some really troubling things that nobody talks about, and just like fertility clinics and fertilizing lots of eggs with the hope that some survive. But it seems most pregnancies spontaneously abort anyway. Turns out human reproduction is pretty tough. Uh, so I don't, I don't think you can solve this on paper and come up with some perfectly airtight, moral, ethical, logical position. I haven't been able to. And when other people tell me how they have, I remain unconvinced. So when I'm lost in the woods like this, I go straight to pragmatism, moral pragmatism. It seems all things considered less abortions is probably better. Less unwanted pregnancies is a better indicator of a healthy society. So how do we do that? You legalize abortion while providing access to contraceptives and comprehensive sex education. That has been shown across cultures, including ours, to be the best way to lower abortion rates. It doesn't seem that making abortion illegal significantly lowers abortion rates. And frankly, abstinence-only education has been shown to lead to higher rates of teen pregnancy and sexually transmitted diseases and, yes, unwanted pregnancies. If you really care about this, give people condoms. Help them understand how sexual reproduction works. And, yes, make abortions legal and affordable. That's pragmatism. <laughs> um, I have a problem as a, as, a, as a guy telling women what to do with their bodies. But then there's still part of me that says, like, at some point, human rights has to come into play. So when does a human get agency? When do they get legal autonomy? And that, that is a sticky question. So in the meantime, let's legalize abortion, provide easy access to contraceptives, and comprehensive sex, edu- sex education for every American. Um, and when you do that, the abortion rate consistently declines, and we have the data to indicate that. So I probably just made literally everyone angry. If you'd like to hear more from smarter people, check out the Liturgist Podcast episode, Pro-Life, Pro-Choice. Okay, last question this week. Are there any challenges to evolution that come from within the scientific community rather than creation scientists and advocates of intelligent design? Neil deGrasse Tyson said in Cosmos Episode 2 that evolution is not just an opinion. 
It is scientific fact. I'm worried that kind of attitude makes it difficult to propose different theories in a community so that so rigorously defends the theory. Thanks. Okay, that's that's a reasonable critique, but I mean, I would also say uh, heliocentrism in our solar system is not just an opinion. It's scientific fact. Now, that doesn't mean it's impossible that you couldn't make a case that the sun's not the center of our solar system, but you would need one incredibly compelling idea with some serious data to back it up. Some things are the institutional center of gravity. Some things are so rigorously defended because they have such extensive evidentiary support and the theory of evolution is one of those things. The theory of evolution, it should be hard to challenge it because, precisely because there is so much evidence backing it up. Now, that doesn't mean there's absolutely no um, non-religious, secular scientists and philosophers that don't have problems with, with Darwinism. Um, one camp has to do mainly with things in evolution that seem very improbable, like uh, the persistence of life or some sets of genes that don't change very much over time. And another tends to be concerned with, from a, a political or progressive stance, um, concerning um, social Darwinism or an interpretation of Darwinism you know, that would say like white people are, are, are better and smarter because of evolution. Neither of those things... Uh, <laughs> disprove evolution um and there, there are actually better social critiques of darwinism than that i did a bad job representing that position but like critiquing some part of darwinism or, or focusing on some point in the theory of evolution that we don't have well defined yet doesn't take out the entire theory it just means we should look more at that and that's how science works it is okay for there to be a center of gravity or an established set of agreed-upon facts within science with the understanding that absolutely everything in science is open to question, is open to reinterpretation with new data, emphasis on with new data. Anyone who's a credentialed scientist would be happy to tell you about the letters they get that make fantastic claims with no data. With no data. That's why science is based on evidence you need data to form scientific beliefs. You need the evidence. Otherwise, we just have a bunch of conflicting claims with no way to decide which one is right. And so I am not worried that Neil deGrasse Tyson's attitude on evolution is too dogmatic because there is such overwhelming evidence to support Darwin's theory of evolution. Another week, another episode of Ask Science Mike. Please send in your hashtag AskBiblePete questions. We've gotten a lot already, but you know me, I always want more. I want to thank Andrew Galucky for his work on pre-production. I want to thank Greg Nordine for producing the show. I want to thank Jeb Botterford for that amazing theme song. And a special thank you to all my patrons on Patreon who make the show possible. If you'd like to throw me a dollar a month or five bucks a month to keep Ask Science Mike going, you can learn more on AskScienceMike.com. Just click on the Patreon button. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I'll talk to you next week.